To follow Jesus means that he is taking you somewhere. So our series title, Where is Jesus Taking You? In the book of Luke, this portion that we've been looking at over the last several weeks, he's taking his followers to Jerusalem. And as he takes them to Jerusalem, I'm positive they weren't processing all of this, but it really was a, a death march to the cross. And they weren't picking all of that up, but that is exactly what Jesus told them. That's, that's why he was headed to Jerusalem. Along the way of this important trip of Jesus, he, he told them stories and he gave them instruction. And I think it's so important that we hear these stories and this instruction because they're very, very critical. So this morning, if you have your Bibles, if you could take them and turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, we'll pick up where we left off last week uh, in verse 9. I'm going to ask uh, Usha Chowan to come and read for us this morning. Luke chapter 18, 9 to 14. He also told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, Thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified, rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted." Thank you. This is a straightforward story. It's not hard to figure out the the essential message of it. Yet these are the ones that I kind of have to take a moment and ask the Lord for help. Because I'm likely to miss something crucial if I don't. I'm likely to think of how many ways it applies to other people that I could think of in a moment. And not recognize that God may have a word for me on this particular morning. The story is about prayer. Two men went into the temple to pray. But it has so much more to do with than just, just prayer. Prayer says a lot about what's going on in our heart. If, we, if we're not praying, that says a lot, doesn't it? It may be we're not praying because, because we're so self-sufficient, we don't think we need to call upon God. Or it may mean that we're, we're not praying because we have some sort of fear of God or some doubt or cynicism as to whether God would even hear that prayer. And if we are praying, it also says something about our relationship, that that maybe there's a relationship of trust and belief and and love and recognizing that God has our best interests at heart. Prayer tells a lot about what's going on in our heart. It reveals a lot. And the prayer of this Pharisee that we just read, that reveals a lot too, doesn't it? Jesus has an audience in mind. We we see it in verse 9. So he tells this parable, this story, 
Because there were some of those that were listening to him that trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And in doing that, they treated others with contempt. That, that's the audience that Jesus is addressing. I, th- I think it's significant. So even before we dive into the parable too far, it's significant that Jesus is talking to people who think they're righteous. The, the thought of being righteous, this is a human thing. This is actually a, a pretty serious thing. Being confident that we are righteous, that we are right, that we are doing right, that we are being right, that we are okay, is a serious issue. Every human feels this. Like once you're able to process things mentally, you have a desire to be right, to be righteous. It's interesting, I was reading a book earlier this year. It is not written by a theologian, not written by a Bible scholar, written by a self-proclaimed agnostic, if not atheist. And hear his words on this subject. He says, an obsession with righteousness is the normal human condition. Human nature is not just intrinsically moral, it's also intrinsically moralistic, critical, and judgmental. This is Jonathan Haidt in The Righteous Mind. You see, every human has this uncanny ability to justify, to make, us, make ourselves seem right, even if the justification is crazy. We have this urge to to justify ourselves. And when you add the human instinct that this is just the way we're wired, the way God designed us, when you add that with how often Scripture talks about being right or being righteous, it's a serious issue. Not just righteous in each other's eyes, but righteous in God's sight. That's an important part of what what it means to be human. I think this parable, even again before we dive into it too deeply, if it matters to be righteous, then also we ought to be aware of just how easily we can deceive ourselves that we are righteous. How easily we can be self-deceived. It's not hard to imagine even when I read this story, part of me wants to go, yeah, I thank God I'm not like that Pharisee. I never brag like that. I never look down on people like that. And then all of a sudden you realize... Oh my goodness, that's exactly where this parable is going. It's it's addressing self-righteous people who think they're better than others for whatever criteria you might gather. So we may not even realize we're in a similar boat. Let's take heed, Paul would say. If anyone thinks they stand, lest they fall. It's where true friends, like true Christian community, are so helpful. Because sometimes they help us hit, you know, blind spots that we just don't recognize, we don't see. We're deceived. We think we're pretty good, and others see the truth about us. This is why we need so desperately the Holy Spirit of God to work in our hearts to show us what the truth is. Even this week, as I'm getting ready to preach on self-righteousness, the Lord reminds me a couple different times where a person pops up in my mind, and immediately I judge them. And I think I would never do what they, I would never do what they did. It's amazing. When you read a story like this, an ancient story, so this one goes back, what, a couple thousand years? When you read an ancient story like this, it is very, very important that you do all that you can to close the gap between how we hear the story and how they would have heard the story the first time Jesus told told the parable. Sometimes there's big gaps and sometimes there's little gaps, but it's important that we hear, hear the differences and understand the differences. I think particularly one misunderstanding, easily, we could go down the wrong road here, one easily easily misunderstood thing is what it meant in that day to be a Pharisee and what it meant to everybody else if someone was a Pharisee. So I don't know if you hear Pharisee like I do, but I generally hear like Pharisee and I I think, what a jerk. 
and I want to give him a thumbs down, and we're all booing the Pharisee. And so we, we, uh, this parable makes total sense because the Pharisee's a jerk. We have no time for that. Nobody has time for that. Actually, that's not the way the first century Jews would have heard the word Pharisee. So we've got to close the gap a little bit to make sure we're understanding what Jesus meant by using this particular analogy. There actually was a lot of respect given to the Pharisees. So much so that if, I mean, people thought if anybody is spiritually successful, if anybody's even successful in life, it probably will be the Pharisee. They probably got that direct line to God that all of us wish we had. They've got it, if anybody has it. I don't know that I even process the full difference of like how I think about a Pharisee and how they might have until someone gave me a helpful, helpful kind of comparison. Imagine with me that one of my girls, so we have, we have two girls, imagine that one of those is 20 and they have their eye on a couple guys. Let's bump the average. Let's say when they're 35, 40, let's keep going. I, I don't even want to think about this too young. No, but in all seriousness, so they've got their eye on a couple guys. So young man number one, polite, straight-A student. He's already accepted into some grad schools. He's well-rounded. In his free time, he volunteers at Habitat for Humanity. He's already, he's already signed up for the mission relief trip during spring break to go help hurricane victims or or earthquake victims. He serves in the youth group. It's guy number one. And then there's guy number two. Guy number two never quite looks you in the eye when you're talking to him. Just a little shifty. And you, you know kind of, I don't think he comes from a really good place. I'm not sure of the background. And he's cheated his way through school. And you only know this because he's kind of proud of it. And as you get to know him a little bit better, you Facebook stalk him and you realize, okay, so this social media, this profile, this looks sketchy. I'm not liking what I see. You get to talk to him a couple of times and you, you smell something. And I, I, think, I think that's marijuana. And then he's always talking about this website thing that he's got that's making him a lot of money. I mean, you're just, I just ask you, like, who do you want your daughter to bring home? So actually, okay, we're all partial to the Pharisee. We all want the first guy. So maybe that just helps us at least process, instead of just, what a jerk, boo, we don't like you, Pharisee. Maybe it at least processes, uh, helps us process this particular thing. Because if anybody's going to end up righteous, we would just tend to think he will be the one. And so when Jesus sticks it to the Pharisee, as he does in multiple stories, we kind of want to go, as he should stick it to, because they're, they're, they're jerks. No one in the first century is hearing that. That's my disclaimer. So let's pull apart this story. Let's take a look at the Pharisee. Let's listen to his prayer. I think it's helpful to recognize, first of all, that the Pharisee, the Pharisee makes his own standard of righteousness. He makes his own. Say, so what is that standard that he makes? Well, verse 10, verse 11 is, is what he is the standard. He says, I thank God that I'm not like the other men. That's the standard, right? He's not like that. There's the extortioners, there's the unjust, there's the adulterers, and I'm not like that. I, I, I'm not even like, and he's, he's got 
peripheral vision as he prays and he sees the tax collectors. I'm not, I'm not like that either. Thou shalt not steal. He doesn't. Thou shalt not commit adultery. He doesn't. He's living with his life on point. He's not like them. You know, the other guys. He's not like that. He's the standard. He's acing the test. He set the standard. He's meeting the standard. He's making his own standard. But then let's also remember, not only does he set the standard, but, but the Pharisee determines his own like evidence of righteousness. He creates his own evidence of righteousness. So part of that is the negative things he avoids. Like he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. But then there's the positive things that he does. So he fasts twice a week, and he gives tithe on everything that he gets. What you need to know about the Pharisee is he's Mr. Extra Credit. It was mandated in the law that, that to follow the law, you had to fast one day a year. It was the Day of Atonement. Yeah, he does it 104 times a year. And you're supposed to tithe on all of the things you produce he actually ties on things that he gets and that, those likely have already been tithed on. So he's, he's doing a double. He's the extra credit guy. He's the guy that messes up the curve when the teacher is inclined to grade on it. He's just the overachiever. He finds this piece of evidence and this piece of evidence and this piece of evidence and it's just like the audience that Jesus spoke to that was willing to justify themselves treat others with contempt. But in the end, Jesus says, the Pharisee will not go home justified. That's just interesting. So in the story that Jesus is giving us, the Pharisee even walks away from this encounter saying, what a great day in church. I got to pray. It was just great. He may not even be aware that he is not justified. And Jesus makes the promise that he who exalts himself, which is what the Pharisee did, will walk away humbled in the end. The people would have been shocked. They would not have expected the story going this way any more than anyone would have expected the widow, like we talked about last week, for her to get anything out of this unjust judge. No one expects that. That's not likely going to happen. But it does. So why did it go in such a different direction? Maybe you have just razor-sharp clarity on why this Pharisee is such a pompous joke and why he got what was coming to him. But the people that Jesus directed this parable likely... Likely they weren't even catching it. And most in the crowd might not have immediately caught it, which tells me, gives me a little bit of humility because I could be easily deceived and be just like this Pharisee, and you could as well. Why is this wrong? What do we need to take away? We kind of go back to what the Pharisee did and then just open up a little bit more to our own heart. I want us to notice what happens when we choose, when we choose, when you choose, when I choose the the, the, the critical evidence of righteousness. What happens when we choose the evidence of righteousness? When I do that, when I do that, I will inevitably choose things I do well as the evidence, as the criteria. That's predictable, right? When we're talking about like, who's righteous and you say, Curtis, put your highlight reel up for the whole world to see, I'm probably going to pick the things that I feel like I've done pretty well at. If someone pushes against me, so imagine someone just goes after you this afternoon, they send you an inflammatory text or an email that just like puts you on the the defensive, they're calling you out. Well, what I notice in my heart is that I have a ready-made defense 
I can tell you like 10 things of, oh, I didn't do that, oh, I didn't do that. I'm just ready with the evidence to say, that's not right, I am okay. It's amazing. So I don't know what evidences you use to make yourself righteous in your own eyes. Maybe it's this, maybe that you always listen to people's problems. You always care for them. You're always the listening ear. Or maybe it's that you just give a truckload of money away. That if we all knew it, we'd go, wow, what a generous person. And you're righteous because of that. Or, or maybe it's that you're pure. You, kn- you know that other people look at that and other people watch that. Other people do this. Other people do that. I don't. I don't. And I haven't for a long time. Or maybe it's that you make sure people are free and empowered and you work for justice. You take, you take stock of the little, little guy or the little gal and you make sure they're going to they're going to get justice. Or, or maybe you're loyal to your friends and loyal to your family and loyal even to your country. Or maybe it's that you have respect for authority and you do things the right way. You see others not doing that, but you do things the right way. Or maybe it's that you're fair and you don't cheat. You don't cheat on your spouse. You don't cheat on your taxes. You don't cheat the government. You don't cheat your employer. And if I take a look at my heart to kind of do that spiritual heart examination that will project it all. Actually, what it'll show is I got, I've, got a, I've got a host of ready-made defenses to say, see, I'm pretty good. See, I'm righteous. Look at this. Well, look at that. Look at this. Look at that. But in doing that, when I choose the evidence for my righteousness, just like the Pharisee did, I selectively choose, don't I? Just like he did. Did you notice he didn't say, I'm not proud, Because we all would have known, yes, you are. Yes, you are. He doesn't say, I don't ever put people down. Because we would say, yes, you do. You see how selective we can be with this? So I might trot out my righteousness before you. But then try to get me to talk about my anger. Try to get me to talk about my pride. My complaining? I, uh, can, we, can we talk about some other things when it comes to materialism or cynicism or how you slack off at work or your hypocrisy or when I walk out these doors and I gossip or when we're so consumed with our image and projecting a certain image to everybody else, and it's not a small thing, it's everything to us. Or when we're talking to someone and out of the corner of our eye, we see someone that we really value their opinion and we don't care so much about this person, so we totally blow them off so that we can talk to the person that we really want to talk to. Or the words that we use that no one hears, but they're profane as can be or the way we judge others in our mind, or the lust, or the addiction, or the apathy toward the poor. Do you, do you see how many, if I select the evidence, I'm going to select it pretty favorably toward myself. But when it's all in play, I, I have a hard time getting a lot of free passes here. I can say I'd never do that. I'd never think that. But eventually you're going to find something in my life. I'm going to find something in your life to go, that's not okay. That's not okay. As we pay attention here, we can also see not only the evidence of righteousness, but 
Again, what happens when we determine the standard for righteousness? When we assume that that power is ours to... I'm going to set the standard. Well, the, I mean, we know this. We're going to make sure we meet the standard. There's a lot of different kinds of tests. So there's tests that are pass-fail. We're going we're gonna to pass. There's tests where you have to score like 70% or above to pass it, no matter how many people. We're going to pass it. We're going to give ourselves a, a 71 or better. There's some where it's like only the top 50% pass. We're going to be we're going to somehow manage to get ourselves in that top 50%. This is what we do when we set the standard for righteousness. It's kind of like the silly game I played in elementary school, the kind of the heads I win, tails you lose. Yeah, that, that's exactly what the Pharisee's doing with the tax collector. He's going to win. And the tax collector's going to lose. He's never going to be unrighteous in his mind. Sometimes we need a little exterior help to help us even see where we're righteous in these ways. I, this book, we've, I've led a couple Bible studies on at the Gospel-Centered Life, and it always seems to press in in uncomfortable ways. So it has this whole chapter about, about our righteousness. And it asks the question, what do you count on to give you a sense of personal credibility? And by that, the author means validity, acceptance, good standing. Do you count on, and here's some of the categories, do you count on family righteousness? What does that look like? It's because I do things right as a parent, I'm more godly than those who can't control their kids. Do you count on schedule righteousness? I'm self-disciplined and rigorous in my time management, which makes me more mature than the others. Do you count on flexibility righteousness? In a world that's busy, I'm flexible and relaxed. I always make time for others. Shame on those who don't. Do you count on political righteousness? If you really love God, you'll vote for my candidate and take my positions. Tolerance righteousness. I'm open-minded and charitable toward those who don't agree with me. In fact, I'm a lot like Jesus that way. Do you see how any of these things can easily become our righteousness? Inevitably, we don't meet that standard. So we play these mind games and then we make up reasons better known as excuses as to why we didn't quite meet that standard. We set these arbitrary standards and we, and then we don't meet them and we go, well, that's just how I'm wired. You know, it's my genes. I mean, I can't change your genes. So it's, it's just who I am. It's, it's not that bad anyway. And I didn't really have a choice. And don't you know, I tried my best and you should have seen what they did. And I'm not as bad as them. And that's actually not really that big of a deal when you really think about it all. And here are all the good things I've done. And, and yet when you slow down and realize that it's crazy, it's craziness for the Pharisee to think he can just make up his own standard of righteousness. And it's crazy when you and I try to do the same. As if somehow we get to pick it. I would imagine a crowd this size, I'm talking to those that actually wouldn't profess to be Christians. And my guess is for many that have not taken a step to follow Jesus Christ, what may be getting you, what may be getting many of them, is this very issue. Christians act so righteous. But in the end, there's so much hypocrisy. They claim this. But you knew that the guy, you knew the woman that it was awful. I don't know that I buy into Christianity. Well, let, 
please, please take Christianity from the direct source, hear Jesus calling out our self-righteousness and saying, no, that's not okay. And no, that's not how you live as a follower of mine. And if we're following Jesus where he's taking us, he's going to deal with our own self-righteousness here. It's so complicated because this Pharisee, it would be, it'd be more simple. I mean, it'd just be simpler if he had horns and he was just an evil guy. And just everything about him would say, evil incarnate. But actually, he gives a lot. You know what probably happens is the Pharisee gives. Probably lots of God's work can be done because he ties on all that he possesses. What a great example he is. Except for, then, then, you, then you see how he treats this tax collector with contempt. And you think, like, what goes on in your soul when you pray to God like that? What has to be misfiring in your soul to think that prayer is okay with God? In the end, you've got a Pharisee and a tax collector. What it comes down to is actually what they need. I'd like us to ask just like that, that question, what happens? What happens when we see our need for a Savior to be our righteousness? That's exactly what the, tax, what the Pharisee did not see. What happens when we see our need for a Savior to be our righteousness? The Pharisee doesn't see a need for a Savior at all. I mean, he does recognize God. Thank you, God. But I mean, that's just barely. He, he, he doesn't need a Savior. You kind of ask a question like, what's he doing in the temple anyway? What does it all accomplish for him other than reminding of himself and others, once again, that he's a, you know, a five-star, blue-chip, all-world person who worships God? He's confirmed in that again, or so he thinks. For the Pharisee, there really aren't any passive verbs. I do this, I don't do this, I do this, I don't do this. He's the subject. First person singular, he manages in a short little prayer five times. He says, I, 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 I. Oh yeah, thanks God for me because I'm this way. Saviors are irrelevant in his world. How different it is. So church, how different it is with the tax collector and how different it is, I hope, with us this morning. When we have a clear appreciation of the standard, we are on the right track. When we have an accurate assessment of how our behavior doesn't give evidence that we're meeting any sort of standard, we're on the right track. So what is the, what is the standard? Okay, if I don't get to make it up, you don't get to make it up, you don't get to make it up, none of us get to make it up. What is the standard? We know. God says the standard is perfect righteousness. 100% holiness. Absolute purity. Loving God with all your heart. Loving your neighbor just like you take care of everyone of the needs you have on your own. What's the standard of God's righteousness? Doing justly. Loving mercy. Walking humbly with God. What's the standard of God's righteousness? He gave us 10 commands. And those are just like the 10 highlights. There's hundreds more. What's the standard? Always, as Jesus said, always doing the will of the Father. Being perfect like your heavenly Father in heaven is perfect. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Just like the Spirit produces fruit. That's the standard. That's the standard for righteousness. No one meets that. See, when we hear it kind of all like that, it, it means the little thing that I want to trot out and say, see, I, I'm okay. 
I'm okay. I was nice to a person Tuesday. I didn't, I didn't swear or use any profanity when someone cut me off on I-95. I actually woke up and got my kid breakfast. I see, I'm okay. I do things well, right? And then we hear this chorus, James 3, we are all stumbling in many ways. Ecclesiastes 7.20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Job 15.14, what is a man that he can be pure? Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. And the Pharisee has no clue about that. But the tax collector does. He shows his recognition of a deep need for God to be a savior to do for him what he cannot do for himself. I told you the, the verbs are kind of all first person singular. And they're all kind of active. I do this. I do this. How different the prayer of the tax collector. who actually is in the passive, right? God be merciful to me the sinner. All he can pray is, Lord, be merciful. The word just embedded in that word is turn your wrath away so that you can look upon me favorably. Turn away your wrath so you can look upon me favorably. See, what the tax collector knows is that judgment is coming. And judgment means separation from God, distant from anything and everything that really matters, eternal suffering, living with the consequences of our choices. The tax collector knows that's the road he's heading on. The tax collector understands that God is righteous. God is righteous in dealing with sin. That's why he says, be merciful. He understands that God is righteous in punishing the guilty. Be merciful. God is righteous in convicting the lawbreaker. God, be merciful. God is righteous in disciplining the rebel. Be merciful. If, if the tax collector is going to have any righteousness before God, he recognizes he will need that to be credited to him. He doesn't, he's not going to have the earning potential spiritually to produce the results. He's going to need an outside person to credit him with that righteousness. And that's where he's looking to God. He cannot earn it. When you hear the word righteousness, I mean, Paul later on in the New Testament is going to unpack all of this in a full way in Romans and Galatians and even Ephesians. But Jesus is just sowing the seeds for us to understand any sort of righteousness we have is not going to be internally like we just really buckle down and try to be good people. But it's going to have to come externally to us and credited to us. Jesus has not yet gone to the cross, but when he goes, it will be very clear that our righteousness comes from him and what he did on the cross for us. That's why 2 Corinthians says it this way, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin for us, the one who knew no sin, so that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So that when God forgives, it's because he's righteous and he's merciful. When God frees us, from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, one day even the presence of sin, it's because he's merciful. It's not because we've been trusting in ourselves. When God pays the debt himself, 
that we owe, when God releases us from that debt, when God loves us, when God reconciles us to himself, when God declares you and I righteous. The tax collector knows what I hope you know, is that you can never look to yourself for all of that. Your words and my words have to be, God, be merciful. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus just makes it so clear. One went justified rather than the other. So it's a pretty clear choice. Do we humble ourselves this morning and just lean all of our righteousness on Jesus? Or do we exalt ourselves only to be humbled in the end? I wonder what choice you'll make this morning. I wonder how that will affect your prayers even in the next few moments. In a moment, we're going to sing as a congregation about boldly approaching the throne. But we only can do that when we're not standing praying to ourselves. Going, thank God I'm not that. Can I ask you to bow your head? In a few moments here, thank God for his righteousness. Thank God for the righteousness of Jesus. Our Father, we bring nothing in our hands to make us righteous. In this story, we are clearly tax collectors, but Father, we're clearly Pharisees too often as well. We confess our need of Jesus. Father, we need you to be merciful to us because of him. Heavenly Father, we lean on his righteousness for our relationship with you to be made right. We trust your amazing grace. We need Jesus to pay it all for us. We need the bloody sacrifice of Christ to make us whole. We need the powerful resurrection of Jesus to make us alive. We need the work of your Holy Spirit to give us new desires, to live in line with the mercy that we've received. We're left with questions, Lord. How can it be that you love us so much? How can it be that we matter to you? How can it be that you justify us? Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Church, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 